the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Almost 10 years ago to the day, on October 9th, 2011, this church, Grace Church of the Bay Area, held its inaugural service. Not as a break-off from another church, no Bible study or small group leading up to that day. We just spread the word, rented a room, and preached the word. There were about 40 people there that day, the majority of whom I knew would never come back, friends who were committed and serving in other churches who had come out to support my wife and I. That first Sunday was not a true representation of who would come back the following Sunday or stick around, but I knew that. But among those 40 people, there were some who were looking for a church, some who wanted to test the waters, try it out, and some who would stay. Some for a year, some for a few, a handful for ten. On that day, I preached a sermon that unless you were there that day, you most likely haven't heard me preach before. It was a topical sermon. The topic, what makes, or at that time would make, Grace Church of the Bay Area different distinct. We're not looking for cutting-edge theology. We weren't going to bend the Scriptures, water down the Gospel. But in the flow and the way that churches were going, specifically in North America and more specifically in the United States of America, I wanted to share with that first group of people and recorded for history the distinctive passions of Grace Church of the Bay Area. And that was the title of the sermon. A sermon like that could be very broad. It could be an exercise in the mundane in the sense of simply repeating what every Christian already knows. But what I wanted to do was not go over the basic tenets of Christianity or the Christian faith, nor did I want to break into the, at that time, new trend of the missional church. No, What I wanted to do was to let people know what I believe the church in America needed to return to and how I planned to make our church one that did. By God's amazing grace and immeasurable provision, we have a church that is built upon these foundational principles. And I hope we'll continue to do so. So I want to look back this morning to praise and thank the Lord to review those distinctive passions while at the same time looking to the future with an aim to excel still more. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is at the end of a letter that Paul has written. 
He even signifies that by starting the chapter, the verse, chapter 4, verse 1, with the word finally. After spending much time in the first three chapters, the bulk of the epistle, thanking God, praising God for the Thessalonians and their imitation of Christ, their example to other churches at the time, their reception of the Word of God, their enduring faith, their constant love. In other words, they were doing well. They were worshiping. They were honoring God. They were sticking to the foundations of biblical Christianity. Their godly living. They're pleasing God. And then Paul concludes by saying, excel still more. Not do better because you're failing, but excel still more. Do better because you're already doing well. He writes in verse 1, Finally then, brethren, we we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, which the entire book makes very clear, He ends with that you excel still more. You're doing great, Christians. Don't stop now. You've changed the world, beloved. Keep it up. You are living the way God has called you to live. So excel still more. And I believe that is true of our church. And that's what I want to encourage you with today. You are doing great do greater. You're worshiping well, worship better. You're excelling in godliness, excel still more. The word excel that Paul uses here literally means to be over and above, to abound, to overflow. It is connected to what we strive for in the Christian life, which is excellence, Excel for the sake of excellence. And you know what the wonderfully beautiful thing about this, because it's founded through, found throughout the pages of the New Testament, that we are to do better, where we are to strive, we are to repent, we are to excel still more, to be excellent. The beauty of this is there is no objective standard when it comes to our lives. There is perfection, that is our goal, that is objective. Jesus Christ and His standards is is objective. But what I am saying is that in your personal life, where you are at, whether you would call yourself a baby Christian, whether you would call yourself a once mature Christian, but now struggling with some secret sin, whether you think you're doing well, the wonder is that excelling, being excellent according to Scripture is not go from a 3 out of 10 to a 10 out of 10, but go from a 3 to a 4. And then go from an F to a D. Which is pretty astounding for the failing student. Then go from a D to a D plus to a C minus to a C. Excelling is different for all of us in terms of what that looks like. It just means grow more, repent more, Read more, worship more, fellowship more, and better and deeper. Excel still more. And this is a call for all of us, no matter where you may be in your walk with God, in your relationship with Christ, in your 
practical outworking of that in your relationships at work, family, bus stop, wherever it may be. We can excel still more. This is one of the great graces and acts of kindness and mercy by God in the Christian life. And as frustrated as we can get, I don't want to wake up in the morning and say, I've arrived. There is nothing I can do today to become more like Christ. I wake up in the morning and I say, I get to try to be a better dad, a better husband, a better pastor, a more powerful preacher, a greater worshiper of God. I get to excel still more. I get to do better. That is what drives us. That should excite you, not bring you down. And so this morning I review for you what we did five years ago and five years before that. The four distinctive passions of Grace Church of the Bay Area. And it's not that what's not on this list we are not passionate about. It's not that we're not passionate about small groups or evangelism. But these are four distinctives that I chose because of what I saw going on in the church at that time. And I'm not talking about big movements within evangelicalism, but more, could you say, personal movements that I saw in trends in how Christians were behaving and interacting, what their priorities were and are. And so four distinctive passions of Grace Church of the Bay Area. The first is the authority of Scripture. Without the authority of Scripture, you have nothing else. Anything else I have to say, anything else you have to believe, anything else you want to do in the Christian life does not make sense unless God has told it to you through His Word. Why do we know not to create statues and images of Him and worship those saying it's Him? Because the Bible says not to. If the Bible didn't say it, we wouldn't know. And so it all goes back to the Scriptures. When you study theology, if you, have, if you enter into a complete theology course, whether in, a, in an academic institution like a seminary or Bible college or in a Sunday school class at a church, they will most always start with bibliology. A silly word, which just means the theology of the Bible. Even before you study what's called theology proper, the theology of the person of God. Why? Because everything we know about the person of God and Christ and the gospel and angels and the church and sanctification all comes from the Bible. So you start there. We get that. The enemies of the cross get that. They don't try to disprove the existence of God to Christians. They don't try to prove that Jesus never was on a cross. They attack the validity of the Scriptures. Because they know, as we do, this is the foundation of everything. Everything you believe is because it is here. There are several passages we can turn to. The most obvious one would be 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And we understand that Scripture is referring to, even at the time that Paul wrote this, Scripture that had not been Scripture yet, that had not been written yet, that was being written at that time. And that word inspired is one of my favorite words in the Scriptures when it comes to the Greek. It is the word that literally means God breathed. I don't know how more intimate you can get in connecting something to God himself. He literally breathed out, this word is saying, the scriptures. It came from the very core of who he is and summarizes and describes and embodies his character. You understand this, right? That his commands are not just willy-nilly random commands like, yeah, I'd like to see a people do this. They are reflections of who he is. That's why Jesus Christ is the great example of all of this. It's not because he tried to do it. It's because of who he is and has been from eternity past. And so it's not like do as I say, not as I do, or trying to raise our kids to, to excel in areas because we failed in those areas. I want you to be kind and loving because I just struggle with being hateful. No, he wants to love us to love because we're reflecting his very character. And that is revealed in the scriptures. As a church, as a people, we submit wholly and completely to the authority of the scripture with the recognition that it is fully inerrant and infallible. It is unbreakable. You've probably heard me use this illustration before. Imagine if you were making lunch for your family, making sandwiches, you're out of bread. Son, here's a $5 bill. I need you to walk down to the market. Just imagine this is 1960. I want you to walk down to the market and buy a loaf of bread. Quickly now. I'm in the middle of making lunch. I need you back. I know it's empty at this time. There's no reason you shouldn't be back here within 20 minutes. Loaf of bread is $3.50. I want exactly $1.50 and change. He comes back in an hour and a half with a dozen donuts and a nickel and change. You wouldn't say, that's okay, son. Because I probably wasn't clear, but what it meant to you was I'm sending you to the store to get whatever you want. You would say that's totally unacceptable. And yet somehow there are people who claim the name of Jesus Christ who think that's okay with the Word of God because that's what it means to me. It's outdated. Bread was yesterday's news, Mom. Donuts today. No. It's not acceptable. You would be fired if you did that at work, demoted, whatever it may be, or you would fire people if people did that at your work. It's not acceptable anywhere else, and it is definitely not acceptable with the words breathed out by the Creator of man. 
over the past decade, we've had many different people join our church. Many coming looking for a specific type of church, whether they call it conservative, whether they, they're specifically looking for expository preaching. Many are looking for a master seminary grad. Some are looking for a church that's somehow associated with John MacArthur. And if that's you, I am so glad you're here. But there are others who have come to our church who have never heard of the name John MacArthur and have never heard an expository sermon in their life. They just Googled it, saw that there was a church nearby, didn't know what we believed, walked in not believing what we believed, were they given a doctrinal statement. If they were given a doctrinal statement, they probably would have read some things that they've never even heard of that would have been, would be basic to many of us. But they sit, they hear a sermon that at first seems boring to them because they've never heard expository preaching, but they say, it is God's Word, and that sounds like what we should be doing in the church. And they commit, and they stay, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am when people walk through that door and say, uh, John McDuffie? Yeah, sure, I think I've heard of him. I get so excited because they just want to go to church and they embrace the Word of God. It's for the same reasons I get excited when someone submits a Q&A question for our fifth Sunday Q&A after 10 years. Is my Buddhist mother going to heaven? I get so excited when I get questions like that. It's because they're not just assuming. They know there's a right answer and they want to know the answer no matter how hard it may be to hear. And what a privilege for me, for us, to be able to share with them the truths of the gospel. I don't want a bunch of transplants from Grace Community Church. I don't want that. I want you guys, which the Lord has given us, hungry to learn, coming in, not thinking you know it all, testing the Scriptures against what I tell you, absolutely, but wanting to learn and hearing things that you've never heard before, that is the church because ultimately you are submitting to the authority of Scripture. And we say, I may not like it. This is going to be hard work. This means I need to have a hard conversation with my parents or my spouse or even my old pastor. But if the Bible says it's true, I believe it is true. And I'm so thankful for this church because of that. As a church, we have grown on a personal level in regard to the Word of God. Some moving from wanting to defend the Word at all costs, even if it means offending and bashing, to defending the Word and holding the line, but biblically with grace and compassion. Not seeing everyone with wrong theology as an enemy and trying to hurt the church, but as people who simply need the Word of God. Understanding that most, if not all, you meet are not embracing wrong theology out of an evil motive, but are misled and probably poorly taught. I'm so thankful to see that growth in our church over these past 10 years. You have grown from evaluating some things to evaluating most things through the lens of Scripture. 
I have seen individuals in our church grow from not just taking so-called spiritual things, church and parenting, but even their everyday decisions from where should they eat to should they spend this money on this vacation all through the lens of Scripture. And I've witnessed people make really hard decisions about potential moves and job offers and raises and promotions because they believe the Scriptures would lean another way. We have grown in the discipling of uh, the discipline, rather, of being in the Word, knowing the Word, and living the Word. And to be sure, even in the past year and a half, there have been issues in our country and in our world that the Scriptures do not speak directly to. But you have sought the Scriptures for the best response and the most biblical and God-honoring course of action to respond to COVID restrictions, Black Lives Matter, and political divisions. And even when you land on a position that I would not land on, to hear how you've wrestled with those issues through the Scriptures is a, such a blessing. But church, excel still more. Move from evaluating most through the Word to evaluating all. Taking every thought captive, not just every decision, every thought. Discipline yourself in reading God's Word every single day. And if you already do, read more deeply, which may mean read less, but to meditate more. He said, I already do that. Excel still more. Read it not just before work, but after work as well. Do a lunchtime psalm. Do something. Excel still more. You already read it. You already meditate on it. Memorize it. Print it out. Put it in your office, in your cubicle. Whatever it may be, whatever that means for you, discipline yourself in God's Word. Submit yourself to the authority of Scripture and your friends who seek to sharpen you with it. You understand that the authority of the Word of God is not just when you read it or when I preach it. It's also when others try to sharpen you with it. Submit to the authority of the Word of God. Excel still more. That leads us to our second distinctive passion of Grace Church of the Bay Area that we started with 10 years ago, and that is biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship. It seems redundant to describe something like fellowship with the word biblical. After all, our understanding of what fellowship is only comes from the Bible. We hardly, rarely use that word outside of Christian fellowship. It's rare to, to even hear it outside of a biblical connotation. Maybe there's some organizations called a fellowship. Right? There's a medical fellowship. But other than that, we don't use the word. Why would we say biblical? Isn't it always biblical? But what has happened in the church is that the fellowship that we have has been disconnected with the fellowship that we practice. In the most fundamental and basic meaning of the word, fellowship speaks of the commonality we have in Christ. The word just means having something in common. For us, it is Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 6-7. through 7. 
And this is what we talk about when we talk about fellowship within the Christian church. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 say, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, speaking of God, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see that connection? If you have fellowship with God, you have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the commonality. That is our common bond in Christ. It's not sports. It's not ethnicity. It's not common likes. It's not even going to the same church. It is Jesus Christ. And when we look at the Bible and see all the one another's, Those are the passages that call us to something such as love, admonish, care for one another. There's almost 60 of them in the New Testament. When we look at those, we understand that fellowship is not just a comfort in knowing that there are other Christians around us, that there are other like-minded Christians that we will worship with on a Sunday morning. That commonality, that fellowship must be lived out in our relationships with those in that common circle because the common thread is more than just a coincidental relationship or similarity in preferences. It is Jesus Christ and His blood shed for us. In other words, when I say biblical fellowship, it's more than just spending time with other Christians from church and saying, oh yeah, we fellowshiped. That is the trend that I'm seeing among Christians. We fellowship together. Well, what did you do? We watched the game. Did you talk? No. Technically, yes, because you have that common thread of Jesus Christ. But when you compare it to the New Testament, that was not truly practicing the fellowship in Christ that you have. Fellowship means praying for one another, discipling one another, rebuking one another, loving one another, considering one another as more important than yourself, serving one another. You say, well, yeah, it's because of the love that we got together to watch that movie. It was, it was, we were serving and that you know, he hosted and I brought some snacks. You know that that is the most surface level fellowship that you can get. You get that. You know that. You wouldn't be okay if you went to a professional to diagnose a medical issue and he charged you for the hour and just talked about your clothing. Really appreciate that you dressed up, really perfect for the weather, you know, you're not, you're not wearing the wrong colors for the... And, and that was it. It didn't go deeper than what was surface level. You may go leave feeling good. Oh, yeah, hey, I guess I dressed better than I thought. But there's more that could have been said. And it was completely left out. And when you look at the fact that the common thread you had with that individual is that you think you're sick and he fixes illnesses, you would say that we did not use that common thread, that fellowship properly. It was a waste of my time. And so when I say biblical fellowship, it's not that we can't watch the game together. It's not that we can't hang out and just have fun and and play sports. But if that's all it is, it's not biblical fellowship, no matter how much we like to call it fellowship. Because you have not been sharpened. 
You have not left that conversation saying, I have things to work on. I am closer to the Lord because I had dinner with that group of Christians. Biblical fellowship means that every interaction that we have with another believer, and listen carefully, every interaction with another believer either draws us closer to heaven or closer to hell. There is no middle ground in the Scriptures. It means Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It is a living out of Colossians 1.28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And perhaps more than anything, this is what has made Grace Church of the Bay Area distinct. This is one of the most common pieces of feedback I get from those who visit our church. I am so blessed to know that we are open with one another. We care for one another. We get into each other's lives. But friends, excel still more. You see, as our numbers naturally grow, you may feel less comfortable sharing your struggles, airing your dirty laundry in a small group of 10 people that used to be three people. And that's natural. There are still some who will deflect. I'm thankful that gone are the days when asking for prayer requests resulted in mere silence or asking for prayer for a friend's trial or a relative's salvation as if we ourselves were perfect. Our church has grown and where we're willing to share even our deepest challenges. But there are still some who deflect. There are some who don't share. And may I encourage you that it's not some, but all of us, including those who are sharing, all of us are not comfortable sharing those things. But the more we fellowship and the less we grin and laugh and tease, the more we excel in our biblical fellowship. Gone are the days when we as a church get together for a meal or to hang out and not a word is spoken about the Lord or one's relationship with Him. Always, even if it's an interjection into a a conversation about a, a totally mundane or secular topic, someone will say, how are you guys doing? Someone will ask about another's dating relationship or their marriage or what you thought about the sermon or the speaker at the retreat. But friends, excel still more. May such conversations not be the conclusion because we need to redeem this time before we leave and go home, but may such conversations be the theme of our get-togethers or of our interactions so that casual for us means Christ-exalting. Just a normal get-together means that we have been sharpened, we have been challenged, we have been encouraged, we have been rebuked, we have gone home and wept in prayer or praised God in exaltation of what He is doing in us through each other. Biblical fellowship. Excel still more.
Distinctive passion number three, service. Service. First Peter 4.10 and 11, which we've seen in our current study in 1 Corinthians, says as each one has received a special gift, meaning everyone, every believer has been given a special gift, a spiritual gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It is by God's strength. It is for God's glory. We have the privilege of serving. Growing up, I was the shy kid in school. And especially when there was an organized game on the playground of a certain sport, it was easier to watch. I wanted to play, but it was easier to watch than to ask if I could join. I count even numbers. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to be embarrassed because I'm not as good. There was a comfort in being in the sidelines. I still enjoyed it, still watched. But I didn't have to take any risks. I didn't need to speak up. I didn't need to really participate. And it was comfortable. And it was easy. But I missed out on all the fun. I didn't experience the fun of playing. I could go on with that illustration and talk about how it's affected my adult life because of not knowing the rules, the games, and sports, and things like that. And I think the analogy is clear even for those who keep waiting and sitting on the sidelines before jumping in to serve. It's the same thing with the Christian life. It is easy to sit on the sidelines. It takes less time. We're all busy. It takes less sacrifice. It takes less money and energy. But you miss out on all the fun. You miss out on the joy of service, the beauty of sacrifice. You've probably heard it said before that Christianity is not a spectator sport. You don't just watch. And a lot of times when we hear that, we think, oh yeah, I need to be in the Word. I need to be working on my life. But what I mean is Christianity, church, fellowship is not a spectator sport. It's not just coming and watching me and watching other serves get involved. I'm not saying that everyone who walks in the door is to be given a name tag and sent to the nursery or put on the worship team. But there's an active involvement in serving one another. I am so thankful that what happens by the time I walk into this church on a Sunday morning would have been unheard of maybe even just five years ago. That I'm not plugging anything in, I'm not testing anything, I'm not turning anything on, I'm not adjusting the screen, I'm not figuring out the, the problems with the projector. And now we have a lot more. We have two cameras pointing at me. We have internet, we have a live stream, we have all kinds of things going on. Those days are gone because people are serving. People are stepping up. 
But friends, excel still more. Whether it's in an official capacity on Sunday mornings or just through your relationships, mostly through your relationships with one another, we don't want to play church. We want to be a church. And you know that church is not this building. This is a high school. Church is not a building. We're the church. There's no building that can practice the one another's. It is us. And there is no way, even with God's help, that all the one another's, all 59 of them, could be fulfilled just on three hours on a Sunday morning. Absolutely impossible. It's clearly meant to be family interacting Obviously, in the New Testament times, they're all living close together. They would see each other regularly, if not on a daily basis, in the marketplace, kids playing together. They all lived in the same little village, town, neighborhood. Things are different now, but we don't have walk across the street and see the rest of your church members, but we have this. You can call, you can text, you can even see each other if you want to. Let's serve one another, get involved, be involved. And when, when you're truly involved in the church, when you're truly involved in the lives of others, it may be that people on a Sunday morning look at you and say, that guy's not serving at all. My point being is service is just fractionally on Sunday morning and the rest is through those phone calls, through those visits, through those doorbell ditches, but they open the door and there's a meal there. It all works together and it empowers the whole. We had a rough week uh, a week or two ago. Our son had a procedure that had some uh, side effects, even though he's had the procedure six times before, had some side effects. They had done something new. They had to intubate him, which they have never done before, and he had some pain. He had to go back to the hospital. And as you all know, life does not stop because someone is sick. You still have your jobs. Sunday's still a coming. I still got to preach. There's still two other kids to take care of. There's still food to be cooked, homes to be cleaned, people to be bathed and, and put to bed. Life continues. And then when my wife and I were at our physical breaking point, someone left a bag of groceries and a meal on our doorstep. And none of you knew that happened. None of you know who that was. And yet, as far as I can tell, I was able to preach the way I normally preach because of that unknown act of service. And by God's grace, I believe, whenever the word is preached, the congregation is blessed. Let's serve. Let's excel still more. Finally, number four, and again, we're talking about things that I had seen were starting to be missing in the church. And I remind you of this because this is a big one. The fourth distinctive passion of Grace Church of the Bay Area is thankfulness. Thankfulness, gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything, not just when things are going well, not just when there's no arguments at home, not just when the kids are healthy, not just when everything, job, kids, marriage, is on your timeline, but in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 
This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus to be thankful. We often say that kids are spoiled. You ever heard that? Look at that kid. He's so spoiled. I grew up in a family that early on, uh, we didn't, uh, we were average financially. We weren't poor, we weren't wealthy, but my parents scraped up what they could, worked hard, the Lord blessed my father's business, and I went to a private high school. I was the only one, I believe, at that time. I believe that particular high school is broader now, which I'm thankful for with scholarships. But I was the only student that I knew of that that did not live in Hillsboro, Atherton, Woodside, Los Altos Hills, or some other cities that have a normal city, but they lived in the city that had the word hills after it. And I remember... There was a lot of stuff that I didn't recognize that they had. And they sure didn't recognize that I didn't have. It wasn't an issue. It was just something that came up. I I had a, my my closest friend in high school would sometimes say, hey, uh, you know, after, uh, it's Friday, after you want to go hang out and we get in his car, he's driving his dad's Rolls Royce. Or Maserati. I remember my brother was really confused when, he had bought some weights and he said, well, you know, I like to work out at night, but my mom's sleeping and it bothers her. And, and without missing a beat, his best friend just said, why don't you just move your weights to the library? <laughs> the what? But as I've grown older, I realized that those kids, just because they were wealthy, they were not necessarily Spoiled. Having a lot of stuff is not being spoiled. Ripe fruit is not spoiled. Having a lot of stuff and not appreciating it is being spoiled. It's not the kid who gets a BMW when he turns 16 that's spoiled. It's the kid who gets a BMW when he turns 16 and says, Dad, I wanted a Porsche. It's a kid who has much but whines when he doesn't get his way or when things break and are not replaced right away, or things are taken away, he throws a fit. And this happens because that individual has so much that it just becomes normal. That's life to them. You don't praise God every time you breathe because that's life. That's normal. They don't praise their parents for the new BMW because they've been getting a new one every year since they were 16. That's just normal to them. That's life. And we have been so blessed as Christians, not to mention Christians living in a country where freedom of religion is a right, which, by the way, is never promised in Scripture. You are never promised in Scripture that you won't be tortured for your faith. In fact, the people we look up to were mostly martyred and tortured for their faith. We are so blessed to be Christian because we understand what our sin has earned, what we deserve. And we're so blessed to be Christian in America that we need to find things to complain about, like masks or vaccines, because we're so used to things like having a Bible on our phones and not being cattle prodded in prison because of that. 
as some people that you personally know are right now in one of the largest countries in the world. What is the key to being thankful? The same key to everything, the gospel. Not just recognizing it, not just knowing it, but embracing it and truly appreciating it, knowing not just that Christ died for your sins, but why he did. Understand that you have earned in everything you have ever done, you have earned one thing, and that is eternal damnation. That's our starting point. You deserve hell is your starting point, and everything else is what we call grace, including in the life of the unbeliever. And when that is our starting point, you are thankful. Over the past 10 years, I have seen our church grow in their appreciation for the Lord, no matter the circumstances. I have watched specific individuals grow from being just critical, complaining people to having a miscarriage and saying, God is sovereign. We're mourning, but we're thankful because the Lord is still good. I've seen people find joy in trials, thankfulness and even the smallest of things, recognizing that it's not the huge blessings, the windfalls, the raises, the marriage, the kids, but even a nice commute or a bad commute, but time to turn on a sermon or meditate on the Scriptures. It's a perspective thing. It's the objective is there. The stuff you've been given is there. That has never changed. It's just our perspective of those things, like the kid with the BMW. How does he view that? And even if that kid developed some website that was bought by Google for $400 million dollars, As a believer, he can still look at that BMW, which cost the equivalent of five cents to us, and be thankful. It's still all about perspective. And it's so good to see how people are thankful. And and I don't know your hearts, but I truly believe that it's not just lip service. You're not just saying it. You're truly thankful. I can see it in your faces. I can see it in your demeanor. I can see it in how you behave. But beloved, let's excel still more. Life is hard. Life is hard. And if you think the challenges of the past year and a half or the last time we'll see anything like this, then... There's some promises, promises of Scripture that I can point you to, as well as some basic laws of science regarding the natural decay of things. Things may get worse. They may get better from a uh, situational, circumstantial point of view. But we need to have the right perspective and be thankful for all things. 
you can mourn and be thankful. You can recognize a failure and be thankful and then try to fix that failure. Those two things are not distinct. The world thinks they're, they're uh, or the world thinks that, you know, you can't have one without the other. But you can't because of the objective reality of the gospel and everything God has given us since then from that point. Let's excel still more. Those were the original four. If you were to ask me if there was a fifth that I knowingly did not add to the original list because it was just a given, but if to add to this particular theme of excelling still more, what would it be? It would be what I would consider our greatest weakness as a church, as individuals. I would add number five would be evangelism. Evangelism. We need to preach the Word of God. We need to share our testimonies. We need to share the Gospel. My heart's desire is that we be a community church. And whatever circumstance you are in, in your previous church or or previous not going to church, whatever it may be, you are here and I'm thankful for that. But the percentage of growth that we have in our church that we would call conversion growth, growth because people shared the gospel and people got saved and joined our church, over the past 10 years, the percentage of that is zero. Not one that I know of. And I understand that it is God who does that, and I wouldn't be saying this unless I knew as your friend and as your shepherd who is involved in your lives that there is much room to excel in in this area. We're in October. I said this five years ago at our five-year anniversary. I will say it today. Perhaps even easier because most of you are still uh, zooming in to work in, in work meetings. Would you make it your goal that by New Year's Eve, everyone in your office or your team has heard the gospel? It'll take you 15 seconds at the end of a Zoom meeting. 15 seconds. And you can change someone's life for eternity. I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful to be your pastor. I'm thankful to see how the Lord is working in your lives as we celebrate a decade of grace. Let's excel still more. Let's look past at all the wonders that God has done and understand and appreciate that there is so much more to come and embrace and appreciate and worship and praise every step of the way. I can't believe it's been almost a year, but last October or November, as my wife and, and I do every year when tis the season, we ask our boys to write down a list, a list of what they would like for Christmas. We don't get them everything on the list. Usually number one is immediately crossed off because of our conviction about too much screen time. No game systems in our home. But it gives us an idea of what they would like. 
And sometimes we'll need a follow-up. Our youngest wrote on his list, a blue stuffy. And so we followed up and we thought, well, maybe he saw a blue stuffy and he knows what kind of animal he wants as a stuffed animal. So we followed up and said, well, what do you want? What kind of animal? And he said, it just has to be blue. (laughs) And so I got on a mission to find the cutest, within reason and affordable, blue stuffed animal that I could find. So, like all good parents, I got dressed, hung my car keys on the wall, and got on (laughs) Amazon.com and searched blue stuffed animal. And I found this really cute, and it was even cuter in person, super soft, uh, little blue elephant. And it's one of those, you know, I think it's kind of a new thing. It's kind of like, like thick corduroy, like it's got ridges on it, just really cute. And so we're waiting because that was the one kind of not certain thing, blue stuffy. Maybe he's going to open it and said, I wanted a seal. I don't know. And he opens it and he hugs it. And we're like, is, is, is that what you wanted? He's like, yes. And he names it Elliot. No prompting. Elliot the elephant. Pretty witty, if you ask me. He, as kids do, he, he adored it right away. Wouldn't go anywhere with it. And it was the night of Christmas. And because he was earlier playing with all their toys in the living room, he had left Elliot on the couch. And so he went up to bed and realized, ah, where's Elliot. And so he comes down, I'm still downstairs, and he says, I need Elliot. Do you know where Elliot is? And I said, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe check the couch, check the living room, because you guys were there most of the day. And I was expecting him to run to the couch and flip up the cushions or whatever. But instead, he stands at the ed- edge of the kitchen, which meets our living room, and goes, Elliot! Elliot, so cute, as if he would respond, like, here I am, come get me. And I know time flies. People tell us that, we've experienced that, we relish every moment. But as people tell us, and and I can see it happening in the blink of an eye, I'm going to be sitting at that same kid's college graduation. And I'll be looking at my wife and say, how did this happen? That's our little baby walking down the aisle, getting his diploma at Harvard. (laughs) It's a Yale, Princeton, just just not brown, not brown. Um, And after that, I know I'm going to be so proud of him. I'm going to find him in that crowd. I'm going to give him a kiss. He's like, oh, come on, Dad. The NFL recruiter's watching. <laughs> and I'm going to look at him. My little baby graduated from college. I'm going to look him in the eyes. He's going to look me in the eyes. And I'm going to think in my mind, Elliot, 
Elliot. Our church has grown up, but it's still growing. And we worship and praise God for all that we saw and experienced when it was just a little baby. And as we grow, and as we mature, and as God works in us, and as we excel still more, we understand the privilege of just going along for the ride and worshiping through a decade, two decades, three decades, and on and on until the Lord returns of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your provision. That in your sovereignty, we can remember your grace in the very name of our church. Whether it's any of these four or five areas that we're so thankful you have blessed us with foundationally, or more, I pray that we would excel. Excel not because we want to make a name for our church, not because we want to be the church, brag about our church, but because we want to brag about you. We want to boast in you. Not in chariots, not in armies, but in the name of our Lord not in the size of our church, not in the success of our church, not in the preaching of our pastor, but in the name of our Lord. May we see it all as grace because that's what it is. Help us, Father, to excel still more, to strive for your glory. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.